my fellow Americans, and Happy Lunar New Year. I'm Stacey Abrams, and I'm honored to join the conversation about the state of our union. Growing up, my family went back and forth between lower middle class and working class. Yet even when they came home weary and bone tired, my parents found a way to show us all who we could be. My librarian mother taught us to love learning. My father, a shipyard worker, put in overtime and extra shifts, and they made sure we volunteered to help others. Later, they both became United Methodist ministers, an expression of the faith that guides us. These were our family values, faith, service, education, and responsibility. Now, we only had one car, so sometimes my dad had to hitchhike and walk long stretches during the 30-mile trip home from the shipyards. One rainy night, my mom got worried. We piled in the car and went out looking for him, and we eventually found my dad making his way along the road, soaked and shivering in his shirt sleeves. When he got in the car, my mom asked if he'd left his coat at work. He explained that he'd given it to a homeless man he'd met on the highway. When we asked why he'd given away his only jacket, my dad turned to us and said, I knew when I left that man he'd still be alone, but I could give him my coat because I knew you were coming for me. Our power and strength as Americans lives in our hard work and our belief in more. My family understood firsthand that while success is not guaranteed, we live in a nation where opportunity is possible. But we do not succeed alone. In these United States, when times are tough, we can persevere because our friends and neighbors will come for us. Our first responders will come for us. It is this mantra, this uncommon grace of community that has driven me to become an attorney, a small business owner, a writer, and most recently, the Democratic nominee for governor of Georgia. My reason for running was simple. I love our country and its promise of opportunity for all. And I stand here tonight because I hold fast to my father's credo. Together, we are coming for America, for a better America. Just a few weeks ago, I joined volunteers to distribute meals to furloughed federal workers. They waited in line for a box of food and a sliver of hope since they hadn't received paychecks in weeks. Making livelihoods of our federal workers a pawn for political games is a disgrace. The shutdown was a stunt engineered by the President of the United States, one that defied every tenet of fairness and abandoned not just our people, but our values. For seven years, I led the Democratic Party in the Georgia House of Representatives. I didn't always agree with the Republican speaker or governor, but I understood that our constituents didn't care about our political parties, they cared about their lives. So when we had to negotiate criminal justice reform or transportation or foster care improvements, the leaders of our state didn't shut down. We came together and we kept our word. It should be no different in our nation's capital. We may come from different sides of the political aisle, but our joint commitment to the ideals of this nation cannot be negotiable. Our most urgent work is to realize Americans' dreams of today and tomorrow, to carve a path to independence and prosperity that can last a lifetime. Children deserve an excellent education from cradle to career.
We owe them safe schools and the highest standards, regardless of zip code. Yet this White House responds timidly, while first graders practice active shooter drills, and the price of higher education grows ever steeper. From now on, our leaders must be willing to tackle gun safety measures and face the crippling effect of educational loans to support educators and invest what is necessary to unleash the power of America's greatest minds. In Georgia and around the country, people are striving for a middle class where a salary truly equals economic security. But instead, families' hopes are being crushed by Republican leadership that ignores real life or just doesn't understand it. Under the current administration, far too many hardworking Americans are falling behind, living paycheck to paycheck, most without labor unions to protect them from even worse harm. The Republican tax bill rigged the system against working people. Rather than bringing back jobs, plants are closing, layoffs are looming, and wages struggle to keep pace with the actual cost of living. We owe more to the millions of everyday folks who keep our economy running, like truck drivers forced to buy their own rigs, farmers caught in a trade war, small business owners in search of capital, and domestic workers serving without labor protections. Women and men who could thrive if only they had the support and freedom to do so. We know bipartisanship could craft a 21st century immigration plan, but this administration chooses to cage children and tear families apart. Compassionate treatment at the border is not the same as open borders. President Reagan understood this. President Obama understood this. Americans understand this. And Democrats stand ready to effectively secure our ports and borders. But we must all embrace that from agriculture to health care to entrepreneurship, America is made stronger by the presence of immigrants, not walls. And rather than suing to dismantle the Affordable Care Act, as Republican attorneys general have, our leaders must protect the progress we've made and commit to expanding health care and lowering costs for everyone. My father has battled prostate cancer for years. To help cover the cost, I found myself sinking deeper into debt, because while you can defer some payments, you can't defer cancer treatment. In this great nation, Americans are skipping blood pressure pills, forced to choose between buying medicine or paying rent. Maternal mortality rates show that mothers, especially black mothers, risk death to give birth. And in 14 states, including my home state, where a majority want it, our leaders refuse to expand Medicaid, which could save rural hospitals, save economies, and save lives. We can do so much more. Take action on climate change. Defend individual liberties with fair-minded judges. But none of these ambitions are possible without the bedrock guarantee of our right to vote. Let's be clear. Voter suppression is real. From making it harder to register and stay on the rolls, to moving and closing polling places, to rejecting lawful ballots, we can no longer ignore these threats to democracy. While I acknowledge the results of the 2018 election here in Georgia, I did not, and we cannot, accept efforts to undermine our right to vote. 
That's why I started a nonpartisan organization called Fair Fight to advocate for voting rights. This is the next battle for our democracy, one where all eligible citizens can have their say about the vision we want for our country. We must reject the cynicism that says allowing every eligible vote to be cast and counted is a power grab. Americans understand that these are the values our brave men and women in uniform and our veterans risk their lives to defend. The foundation of our moral leadership around the globe is free and fair elections, where voters pick their leaders, not where politicians pick their voters. In this time of division and crisis, we must come together and stand for and with one another. America has stumbled time and again on its quest towards justice and equality. But with each generation, we have revisited our fundamental truths, and where we falter, we make amends. We fought Jim Crow with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, yet we continue to confront racism from our past and in our present, which is why we must hold everyone from the highest offices to our own families accountable for racist words and deeds, and call racism what it is, wrong. America achieved a measure of reproductive justice in Roe v. Wade, but we must never forget it is immoral to allow politicians to harm women and families to advance a political agenda. We affirmed marriage equality, and yet the LGBTQ community remains under attack. So, even as I am very disappointed by the President's approach to our problems, I still don't want him to fail. But we need him to tell the truth and to respect his duties and respect the extraordinary diversity that defines America. Our progress has always been found in the refuge, in the basic instinct of the American experiment, to do right by our people. And with a renewed commitment to social and economic justice, we will create a stronger America together. Because America wins by fighting for our shared values against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That is who we are. And when we... I'm
State of the Union rebuttal uh, uh, against Donald Trump's uh, State of the Union speech itself. That she will be back. It, it's a clip, <laughs> but she will be back later on into the show. So stay tuned for that. All right, welcome back to the George Wilder Jr. Show, uh, broadcasting live out of the city of Chicago. It's not as cold as it was a few days ago. We were freezing our asses off a few days ago, but we seem to be okay. Now, you know, in my studio here, uh, the heat's up every day. I mean, all the time. It's, I mean, it's like we're sweating in here right now, you know. Where was it three or four days ago when we were freezing our asses off? But, you know, that's another story. Anyway, Stacey Adams, they're trying to get um, Stacey Adams to run for the Senate. And uh, she is, from what I'm hearing, she's thinking about it or it's, it's it's a done deal. She may just run for the Senate uh, in 2020. Exactly, 2020. She could do a lot more in the Senate than she can do as governor, probably. But, you know, we do need African-American governors around, especially in the South. I, I just don't understand why there there's such an influct, influxion of African-American people in the South and being ruled by uh, racist governors. You know, so hopefully they'll change in the near future. Uh, basically, people have to take back their country. People have to take back their states, their cities from this racism. From I was just reading something uh, a second ago where um, in Utah, they are, um, I, I believe they're denying uh, health care uh, and they're making it into some sort of a law. I'm going to have to check that out again. I'm not sure if that's what. It is, but they're denying something. They're just they're denying rights to some people in Utah, and, and they're making it the law. And uh, people uh, uh, in 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 these individual states, if you're having problems with your governor, you're having if these are if they're racist or they're they're just they they're not doing the right thing. They're uh, unsympathetic. They're you know they're mean and they're nasty. Your politicians. The people of those states where these politicians are wreaking havoc on on those folks who live in that state, you people have to stand up, take back your state. You, you're the one to do it. You have to do it. We realize that a lot of these politicians in a lot of these states around America are setting up voter suppression. I mean, it's even if you're – like Stacey was saying, even if your ballots are lawful, they don't even want you to vote. It is it's nothing about voter fraud. The only people who are committing voter fraud in the United States are the Republicans. If you hear of some Republicans saying that Democrats are committing voter fraud, well, it's more lies. What can I tell you? But if you're in these states that are uh, – uh, I'll put it this way. If you're in these states and, and you have a Republican governor and this person is – not doing the right thing when it comes to the voters is when it's not they're not doing the right thing when it comes to uh uh representing what you've voted them in office for kick them out do not so too many people in my estimation too many people sit around and let these things happen you cannot let them happen if you got a rogue uh a representative a rogue governor a rogue local uh, attorney general or secretary of state, you have to get these people out. Fight for your state. Fight for your country. Fight 
for your city. Fight for your town. Fight. Get these Republicans out of there who are not doing anything for you, who are just lining their pockets with your tax money. Because that's all it is. They don't give a damn about you or your problems. They couldn't care less. And the, and, and the moment you find this out, work hard and di- diligently, excuse me, of voting these people out on their asses. I mean, Republicans all over the United States where they control uh, local legislature, you know, in, in those states, they are prompting themselves. They are trying to uh, make sure that they stay in power forever as, as if Democrats don't have a right to, to have power. To have control over those states, Republicans want to keep their foot, feet, foot, feet. Which one? Feet <laughs> on the back of your necks. That's all they want to do. If you're in these states, don't sit back and cry. Do not act as if uh, you don't have a say or a right in what's going on in your government. And for God's sakes, do not think or try to feel helpless in doing anything about uh, the crime and the corruption in your neck of the woods. You have it all. This is America. As Stacy was saying, we are coming for America. That's a good title for a book. We're coming for America. I wanted to use it. I started to use it. You know, I said, no, uh, copyright infringement. No, I don't think so. Um, but I, I don't think you can copyright a title or something like that. But you know. But anyway, I would entitle her uh, speech after the uh, after Trump's uh, State of the Union. We are coming for America, and that's what it's about. We are coming for America. I'm gonna have to use that because I do like that. Uh, I have a up, I have an upcoming book on Donald Trump. Uh, I was thinking about using that. Uh, we are coming for America because I'm calling it. I'm calling my upcoming book The Slime of Donald Trump, and but I'm even having thoughts about calling it The Slime of Donald Trump uh, because I don't really want Donald Trump's name on the front of anything that I'm producing. I'm, I'm writing this book. I don't want his name on the front of it. His name is all through it in terms of content, but on the cover, I don't need his name. So I'm going to change it to uh, – I wanted to use uh, We Are Coming – for America, but that's Stacey Adams. So Stacey Abrams. Why? Why do I call her Stacey Adams? But uh, it's Stacey Abrams, and I think she said Stacey Abrams when she was uh, introducing herself without the S on the end of her last name. But you know that could have been an oversight. Who knows? But anyway, um, my latest book. Uh, you know, I'm trying to get done with this book. I've I've gotten over. Maybe 200 pages so far, maybe. And I'm trying to end it. I'm editing it right now. I'm trying to, but there is so much that keeps coming out of the Donald Trump administration that's negative that I can't really put an ending on the book. I got it because everything that comes out of out of the the Trump administration and from news reporting, you know, I just keep I just keep having to build on it in my book. 
you know, I want to put a say, that's the end of it. That's the end of it. And then something else comes out salacious. And I say, oh, I got to put that in the book. Bing. <laughs> you know, then I said, that's it. That's it. That's the end of it. I'm through with it. I'm done with it. It's just about over. Then something else comes out in the news about Donald Trump. Oh, I got to put that in it. Bing. <laughs> and I've been told that um, that's the way it is with Robert Mueller. He's trying to come. Uh, he's trying to finalize his report into Donald Trump's corruption, but yet Donald Trump keeps providing more and more and more material that causes this investigation to linger on. Like, let, let's take the State of the Union address. Now, there was more material for Mueller to investigate just by Donald Trump opening his mouth. Because if you think about it, Donald Trump is saying one of the things he said, well, I think one of the things that overshadows uh, the State of the Union, because I'm hearing that this State of the Union by Donald Trump is a lot better than some of the other ones. But one of the things that's going to overshadow this particular State of the Union is that Donald Trump once again committed obstruction of justice out in the open when he said – when he threatened Democrats to stop the investigations into himself. Now, that's going to give Mueller uh, more material to investigate. I mean, you know, wow. I mean, this is really something, you know. And and in some cases, Donald Trump used the special – this uh, um, State of the Union – excuse me, this State of the Union to fundraise, to fundraise for his uh, 20 – 20 uh, uh, re-election campaign, if he makes it that far, if he makes it, if he makes it that far. And a lot of people thought that was wrong. I thought it was wrong. Using, the, using uh, an institution like the State of the Union for fun and to threaten Democrats and, and the American people. That's what he's done. You know, I mean, so that gives Mueller – more material to work with, so he really can't come up with anything uh, more material to work with. It gives me more material to work with. I'm trying to end this book, but I keep Donald Trump keeps giving us stuff to put down and try to figure out and give give our own opinions about. You know, so uh, <laughs> we'll just have to see what what's what's up. But anyway, Stacey Adams, I think she, I thought she was just grand. That's why uh, I had her uh, clip on the show. And we're going to hear more from her on the George Wilder Jr. Show. It is a great day in the city of Chicago. Wherever you are in the world, I hope you are doing fantastic. We are doing fantastic. We are feeling fantastic. Let's go to the phone to see who this is. You're on the George Wilder Jr. Show. Go right ahead. Hello, George. This is Douglas Robinson. We have an interview coming up. Yeah, go right ahead. Okay. Uh, as you probably know, tell us a little bit about yourself about, and give us a, give us a little bit of your bio. Tell us about yourself and and uh, what do you do? Well, let's see. Uh, I write stories about vampiric blood drinking people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stories are uh, realistic in the sense that I write about living people that have a condition that forces them to drink blood to survive. The story wow. itself. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's kind of hard for most people to take. Uh, I haven't it gotten is. too many wows. 
Yeah, exactly. Because a lot of people, a lot of people just don't like to read about blood. A lot of people really can't stand the sight of blood. You know, uh, I I think that's why some of my books don't sell because <laughs> so, they're so they're so bloody. You know, but but you know it's fun. It's fun. And uh, who is Nicole Shyster? I can't pronounce the last name. Is that your agent or something? Nicole is my publicist. Okay. Okay, she, because I she helps market me. Yeah, yeah, because she sent a few e- emails, and uh, I, actually, I you know, this is a show. I don't too much deal with publicists or um, or agents uh, that who try to get their uh, uh, clients onto shows. You know, I'm the type of guy I like to deal with with the writer or. Uh, the author, one on one. Okay. Well, all right. Here I, I, I am. Okay. I'm. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Okay. Um, how long have you been writing about vampires? Um, I had them on my heart most of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, even when I was very young. Mm-hmm. But in 1983, I took a little fiction writing class that summer. Yeah, and as part yeah. of the little fiction writing class, you know, you write two little short stories and it's critiqued yeah. and you learn about plot and characters and so forth. Yeah. Well, the second story that I wrote was essentially the ending of the first novel length story. And after I finished that little summer course, I kept seeing the equivalent, what would later be the equivalent of 16 novel length stories regarding this vampiric girl named Macon. Wow. Her relationship with this young man, Thomas, who later becomes vampiric because he was exposed to her blood in a fight. What, in, what intrigues you about vampires? I don't know that intrigue is quite the right okay. word. I would say that All I right. just care uh, whether they live or die because okay. they're in a real bad situation to begin with. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, you know, years ago, maybe a few years ago, I was very intrigued. Uh, I mean, I was a, a number one fan of vampires. I just loved them. Uh, <laughs> I just loved them. I, and I love the survivors who try to, you know, not get bitten, you know, cause, because if they get bitten, they're going to turn into a vampire. And it's, it, I just loved them. I just thought it was just – and I did a few books. Uh, I, I I did a few uh, books on Dracula, uh, but – not involving so much vampires, just Dracula himself. But uh, you know, I always, I, I always liked uh, uh, vampires. I, I really, and I still do in in a sense. I do think it's kind of wearing thin, uh, but I do. Uh, I was just intrigued of, of vampires, just you know, looking all bloody, going to eat up people, you know. <laughs> Well, a, a lot of people are, but you know, yeah. most people have Dracula on the brain, and so <laughs> they don't really see it. But you know, I bring a different perspective to it, uh-huh. and I think I show more of the suffering and the uh, struggle on their end of it. Uh, you give it, you give it a more of a human kind of feeling. Well, I mean, as living people, they can still die. Yeah, yeah, and but it's they it's, have to survive somehow. Yeah, and, and you craft a, a a pretty good story around that. 
Yes. Okay. With God's right. help. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and uh, you've done quite a few of these kinds of uh, writings. And how are people reacting to to what you do? Well, the first story is called Silently Comes the Night. The mm-hmm. second story is called Rites of Passage. And the only two that are published at present are those two in the series. Uh, the next three are with Deadly Intent, Overkill, and Making Story. And those are in uh, mm-hmm. sort of progress right now. But the wow. entire storyline mean... – I'm sorry, sir. Go ahead. No, no go right ahead. Well, the entire storyline, like I say, after I finished that little fiction writing class, I saw the people, the characters, as you would call them, the situations, their lives, their – and basically I saw Macon's life essentially from a period of time uh, from 1993, and the storyline itself goes to about 1999. But it was all this detail and all these people and all these places that I just, well, it plays like a movie in my head, like you can see it on a video screen. Mm-hmm. But like I say, when you come to the people in the story, like in the second story, there's Janine, Alicia, uh, Nolan, uh, Thomas's sister Kimberly, his parents. I didn't, quote, make up characters for a story. These are people I just saw. So you just saw them and put them in your story. Yes. Okay, that's great. That's nice. Uh, do you uh, do you think you're gonna continue with this series, or, or are you gonna mix it up a little bit, or you're just gonna keep on doing what you do? Well, the ser- the series as I saw it, I have yeah. it written down in like a synopsis form. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like I say, what I hope to do with the series is bring out things about vampiric people that people, you know, regular human people don't know. Uh, It's almost as if, if you imagine, um, I'm on their side of the fence when I'm writing. It's like I'm on their side of the fence looking at you from their side when I'm writing. And uh, and since I care about whether they survive or not. You're going to give them... uh... Brain power. You're gonna. They're gonna be thinking vampires. They're going to be uh, have have a have a heart, kind of a have well, feelings and things like that. The vampire is gonna have feelings well, and. Yeah, there's a there's a large amount of suffering though. Um, okay. But what I'm trying to do for your readers is make it real to them, so you'll understand. Okay. And so that if you ever encounter someone like this you would have a better way of approaching them, what to do, what not to do. You know where they're coming from. You know what they need. Uh, the important thing for your people to understand is that if you attack us, and I say us because I'm included with them, it's, it's just not going to go well. But people who are <laughs> afraid do do bad things. And so I'm just imploring your audience to Tuck this away, and you know that if it, you ever find out, don't do not so you, attack us. Okay, so basically you're saying do not attack us. So you're saying that you are one of the characters in your book. 
No, no, no. I'm counted with okay. them. Uh, but you're writing this. That, yeah, I'm writing this. It's sort of a. But like I say, the only reason I'm doing it is so that you're aware of things that you're not oh. currently aware, and that you can have this. You don't need knowledge of us. You need understanding of us. Okay. And the only so way think, that I could do that is with a story. Okay. So you're saying us. So I'm figuring you including yourself in to what you're writing along with the other characters. Uh, I could be I, wrong, I, but I, I, I count myself with them. I think people like this really exist. Okay, you okay. All right, that's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I know a few real live vampires myself. Believe me, I've worked with them over the years. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> Okay. All right. This sounds intriguing. This sounds great. So, uh, if my audience wanted to check out your your uh, 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 series, even if I wanted to check out your series, where would I go uh, find what okay. find your work? Okay. The stories uh, are available on Amazon and Kindle. Okay. If you search for my name, Douglas Robinson, there's another Douglas Robinson who writes. But if you search for the Silently series, in addition to my name, you should be able to find them on Amazon or Kindle. Okay, Douglas Robertson. I got. I'm going to remember that. But there's that's you write about one thing. This is such a common name. I'm pretty sure a lot of people have it. So we have to search for the series, the Vampire series, specifically. Silently series. Silently. I'm writing this stuff down. Silently. Because you've sold me, and especially if when you include yourself in this, <laughs> you've sold me, and you uh, say that um, your characters, your vampire characters, uh, have some sort of feeling, feeling like the rest of us, and they That's do true. exist. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, uh, how are the books doing? One more question. How are the books doing on Amazon? Mm. I'm not getting really a lot of royalties. Uh, I wish it would take off, but maybe I can get the Uh, word out before things blow up, and it will all be good. Uh, What about, uh, I guess what I'm saying, what about uh, uh, ratings? What what are some of the ratings for your books? Uh, Uh, I got a very positive review on Kirkus Review. Good, Uh, great. I got uh, some other positive reviews like, Four out of five stars, or four point something out of five stars. Uh, the people who read it, who like vampire type stories, uh, said it was different, a new take. Okay. 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 So that's basically what it is. Sometimes, if you just have a few uh, a positive reviews, a few pro- positive ratings, that's enough. Uh, in some cases, to get your book going, you, at least somebody is saying, "Hey, wow, this is a great story. This is a great book," and other people are coming along. Wow, let me check this out, uh, read a sample of it or something, uh, you know, and check it out. Okay, give us your name one more time and tell us how we can get in touch with you if we, uh, uh, so that we can actually uh, check your stuff out. You have a website or okay. something? Or, okay. Okay, Douglas Robinson. You know, like Robinson Caruso and like that? Yeah, Douglas. Space yeah, Family yeah. Robinson, all of those? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
the website is https slash slash silently dash publishing dot com. Okay, Robinson, uh, Douglas Robinson, are you working on anything now for the future? Well, uh, I have the next three books that I'd like to to get it done, uh, but it's not there yet. Okay. But if you look Uh, in the front of any of the books, you see the list of the 16 stories that it's going to be. Oh, okay. All right. Douglas Robinson on the George Wilder Jr. Show. And he's talking about vampires. Thanks a lot, man, for being on the show. And and lots of luck. Thank you, sir, so much for having me. No problem. Bye-bye. All right, the George Wilder Jr. Show is back. Douglas Robinson on the George Wilder Jr. Show. He is a writer. A writer. I just love having writers on the show because I'm a writer. said, uh, this is veto bait. What is veto bait? A proposition to open up the people's government. Veto bait. And what is the Republican position? Unless the co-equal branch of government, the House of Representatives, says yes to the President of the United States, you will continue to support ad infinitum closing down the American government. Our Russian uh, uh, 
I won't call them enemies, but adversaries, at least, are very happy, I'm sure, that the American government is shut down. Our Chinese competitors are very happy that the American government is shut down. We look ridiculous on the national and international scene. I asked one of my Republican colleagues to stand, and I will yield to them, tell me which government of the world shuts themselves down. You're correct. The answer is I can't find any government in the free world that shuts themselves down. Is that what you won't vote for, opening up your government, the people's government? Is that what this fight is about? Or is this fight about, Mr. President, you tell us what to do? Mr. McConnell says he won't put anything on the Senate floor that the President won't sign. My, 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 what a co-equal branch of government we are. The Article One says we make the policy. We decide what's rational to spend $5.7 billion on. When experts tell us this wall won't work, but Senator Cornyn, Senator Graham, Senator Kennedy, other senators have said this is not a good investment. And by the way, somebody else who said that was Mick Mulvaney some years ago, who's now chief of staff at the White House. This is not a partisan issue, and this is not about the wall. Nor was it about the ACA. Nor was it about the level of education funding when Gingrich shut down the government, or when Ted Cruz and the Freedom Caucus shut down the government. Thank God for John Boehner, who had the courage to put and say, shutting down the government does not make any sense. It's a stupid policy. Thank God for John Boehner, who came to the floor, notwithstanding the fact only 87 of his Republican colleagues would support him. And with all the support of the Democrats, we opened up the government after 26 days. Now, we've exceeded it this time. And what happens two weeks from now when the president says, either you do it my way or no way, or I'm going to shut down the government? We are paying a high price, Mr. Speaker, for shutting down this government. Not only eight, the, the 800,000 hostages that have been taken by the president of the United States, with the complicity of his Republican supporters in the House and in the Senate. 800,000 people. 440,000 of them forced to work without getting paid. 360,000 of them sitting home and saying, how am I going to pay my mortgage? How am I going to pay my car payment? They don't know. I talked to a veteran just three days ago, who represents a lot of veterans organizations, who said to me, do you know the highest reason for veteran suicide? I said, no, what is that? Fiscal uncertainty. We have a lot of veterans in the federal government. 
We have a lot of veterans who are either laid off or working and not getting paid. We are creating financial instability and anxiety among our employees. What a stupid way to run a business. Yesterday, we had a motion to recommit, and it was to strike opening up the government in the United States. That was apparently, as the chairman, chairwoman has uh, expressed, a poison pill for my Republican colleagues. Mr. Speaker, I don't get it. We were sent here by our people to make their government run more efficiently and effectively for them and for our country. And what have we done? We've said, if the president won't agree to opening up the government, we won't either. Yes, we've tried every kind of alternative. Open it up in seven days. Open it up for 14 days where we can negotiate. Open it up for, and now we're saying, open it up for a month. Put people back to work. Give them a paycheck. And what does the President's Council of Economic Advisors say just the other day? We're hurting the economy of the United States, which hurts everybody and the international community. I don't get it. I can't think that the American people will get it. That their Congress sits supine and says, we will only pass something if the President says it's okay. Have we come to this state where the Article I branch of government, given the power by the people to make policy, says to the person in the second article, given the responsibility of executing policy, tells us, you guys who make policy, don't do it unless I tell you you can. How sad. How lacking in respect for our own responsibility and duties to sit idly by while not only 800,000 people are held hostage, but by millions and millions and millions of others who are served daily by those 800,000 people. I plead with my colleagues, stand up. Reject this policy of shutting down government. Whoever does it, whichever side does it, and we don't do it. We don't believe in it. Mitch McConnell doesn't believe in it. He said it just a few years ago. It was a failed policy. And he, Senator McConnell, was the guy that opened up government. That's what he said. And he's now abandoned at that unfortunately, to the detriment of our country. Not just to the detriment of our federal employees, to the detriment of the country. Mr. Speaker, I would hope every American would call their member and say, look, you guys have differences, that's all right, but don't shut down my government. Don't hurt my economy. Don't hurt my neighbor. Don't hurt my mom and dad. Don't hurt my child. Don't send people to the border to make us secure when you talk about border security, and then don't pay them and have them worrying about uh, when they're going to get their next paycheck.
We're better than this. Our breaking news at this hour is that Chuck Grassley has confirmed, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, that Rachel Mitchell, the Maricopa County uh, attorney in the prosecutor's office there who specializes in prosecuting sex crimes, will ask the questions for Republicans during the hearing on Thursday in which Brett Kavanaugh will appear to defend himself against a charge of sexual assault uh, in which uh, Dr. Christine Blasey... Recently, Fox News did a viewer poll where they were hoping to show the country just how unlikable the Democratic Party is. And you know what? They did a pretty decent job of it because uh, only 44% of the respondents believe that uh, Democrats put the country over their party, whereas 43% said they put party over country. So by only a one-point margin... People said, no, Democrats love the country more than they love their party. That's pretty bad for the Democratic Party, right? I mean, if Fox News presented that information to us, that would make them look really bad. But the reason you're not hearing more about this poll is because the numbers are actually even worse for Republicans. According to Fox News' own numbers, 36% of voters say that the Republicans put country over party, that they care more about the United States than they do about this thing called the Republican Party. But 52%, a majority of people in this country say, no, the Republican Party absolutely puts their party over their country. Now, here's why this is important. First and foremost, think back to a few of the recent campaign slogans that Republican presidential candidates have used. We had McCain and Palin, country first. Yeah, the voters don't buy that anymore. Donald Trump, make America great again, which we now understand is make me even richer than I was before I ran for president. has nothing to do with making America great. And the majority of people in this country understand that, while only a third think Republicans actually care about the United States of America. That is a remarkable poll. And if I were a Republican strategist or a Republican politician, I would be freaking the hell out right now. And you know why? Because we've got midterms just a few weeks away. And when you have a majority of voters questioned by Fox News who say that your party values the party over our country, yeah, that spells certain doom for you in November. That's not exactly something you can turn around in the next six months, especially with what you're doing with Brett Kavanaugh. You wanted to confirm this guy, even though there were multiple women coming out on a daily basis for the last week, accusing him of sexual misconduct. And you didn't care. Every time a new woman came out, you would still say, oh, it doesn't matter. I'm going to vote to confirm him anyway. Because it's not about country. It's about party. And the American public has been paying closer attention to what's been happening than they really ever have before. And I think that's why we're getting a little bit of this awakening, is that people are paying attention. You know, we're kind of weeding out the fake news, except for Fox. But even though Fox is the highest rated cable news show, if your highest viewed program only gets 3 million viewers a day... It seems like a lot, especially compared to everybody else. But when you consider there's almost 330 million people in this country, but only 3 million watch one Fox program each day, 
eh, not really that influential, uh, are you? Nonetheless, people understand. People are paying attention, and people know exactly what the Republican Party is all about. And that is going to be revealed. It's going to be seen in the results that start coming out during the midterms.
I have great confidence in my intelligence people, but uh, I will tell you that President Putin was extremely strong and powerful in his denial today. And what he did is an incredible offer. He offered to have the people working on the case come and work with their investigators with respect to the 12 people. I think that's an incredible offer. Donald Trump shocked even his harshest critics with his submission to Vladimir Putin this week, likely including my next guest. And joining me now for your moment of Maxine, Congresswoman Maxine Waters of California. And Congresswoman, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Welcome. So were you, I think much of the country was surprised to actually see Donald Trump in action with Vladimir Putin and how submissive he was in public. What did you make of what, what happened in Helsinki? Well, I'm not surprised at all. As a matter of fact, I have for months uh, been trying to tell the American public and everybody else that this president is dangerous, uh, that he's in bed with Putin. Uh, someone said he wants to be like him, whatever. He will never, never condemn him uh, because of the relationship that they have. This didn't just start. This started a long time uh, before he was ever elected. Don't forget. This president cannot borrow money in the United States from any bank. This president is looking at Russia for his new money financial playground. He and all of his allies that I have told you are the Kremlin clan, uh, have been involved with Russia. When you name them and you think about them, why is it Manafort, Flynn, Wilbur Ross, Carter Page, Papadopoulos, all of his allies have connections with Russia, the Kremlin, and the oligarchs. This has been going on because this is their new money playground uh, that they want to develop. And the centerpiece of this is lifting the sanctions. I would wish people would focus on the sanctions. I think that's the agreement uh, that Putin had with this president in order to help him get elected. This president, I believe, has promised him that once he was elected, he would get those sanctions lifted. And you're going to watch. He's going to continue to try because Putin is saying to him, when is it going to happen? So he has a private meeting with him. We know what they talked about. I think I know what they talked about. They talked about lifting the sanctions. They talked about the upcoming elections. Uh, they talked about uh, all of the things that they could not talk about uh, in an email or on the phone. He had to go and meet with him in private so that he could talk about what he's going to do to follow through with I, what I believe is his commitment to get those sanctions lifted. Don't forget, when Tillerson was there, Tillerson was there to help get the sanctions lifted. He just couldn't put up with this president. He found this president to be so outrageous uh, that he ended up leaving, but he came to be a part of helping to get these sanctions lifted. It's worth trillions of dollars. Everybody will make some money if he can get this done. Right now, Putin's hands are tied. He cannot get the equipment or the supplies that he needs to do the work because our allies are cooperating with us. So I'm not surprised about what happened in Helsinki. I'm not surprised about the private meeting. I'm not surprised about this president standing up for 
Putin. As a matter of fact, I think he is Putin's apprentice. He's wow. been under his toolage for a long time now, and he intends to get it done. And the American people are sitting idly by. And the Republican Party should be ashamed uh, that they're allowing this to happen. Uh, they have no guts. They have no courage. They're not standing up for America. I dare them to talk about how patriotic they are, uh, given of what they're allowing this president to do. Now they're all going to send out press releases saying, oh, we don't want you to invite Putin. Well, he's going to invite him unless the Congress of the United States and the Republicans really take some serious action. How many of the Republicans are saying, I won't come to the White House. I'm going to be outside demonstrating. How many of them saying, don't invite me to any dinner. You better not have a state dinner. How many are saying that they're just saying you shouldn't and we don't want you to do it. But I want to tell you, if they don't take strong action, to keep him from bringing him here, he's going to bring him here. And that will be another, another straw in his hat that he can point to and say, see, Mr. Putin, I'm moving this forward, what we talked about, what we're going to do. I'm going to get this done. And forget about what he did uh, with North Korea. Yeah. Uh, that's just a, an effort to say that I'm doing this with both countries, and that's just an effort to say that, see, I'm trying to create peace and relationships in different ways. But the fact of the matter is his focus is on Russia and lifting those sanctions. And you're going to see him continue to try it because he has an agreement that he cannot get out of. Yeah. When people yeah, want to know what does Putin have on the president of the United States, is this agreement where the president promised he was going to get the sanctions lifted and Putin is going to hold him to it. Let me, you know, you mentioned Carter Page, uh, Congresswoman, and here is the, uh, the FISA warrant, which was released in unprecedented fashion by the FBI. Uh, we have it this morning and uh, folks are reading through it. Um, what do you think that this, the release of this document does to the credibility of the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Devin Nunes? Well, you know, First of all, they've got to understand that he was put under surveillance because of the actions that he was taking, not only that caused suspicion, but I think it was deemed uh, that he basically was going to be used to spy. Uh, he's not considered to be very smart, uh, not considered to be uh, very, uh, you know, capable of uh, not of resisting, rather, uh, the Russians. And so I think that Nunes and all of them are looking very silly. I think that they should be ashamed uh, that they would in any way undermine the FBI and the FBI's work to try to protect this country from our enemy, which this president says he's not our enemy. He's just a competitor. He keeps going on uh, like that. But the, the fact enemy, of the matter right. is Thanks, uh, uh, that Maxine. Nunes and... He is the enemy. There's no doubt about it. And after this State of the Union address uh, where he threatened Democrats to stop investigating him and he basically, you know, uh, obstructed justice uh, uh, in the State of the Union, uh, the Democrats are not going to have any of it. They say that they are going to uh, – actually, they have already started investigations after the State of the Union, where he threatened them, they've started investigations into his finances and to his crimes. So he just he just walked in it. Trump just stepped in it, you know, uh, threatening people to do something. You don't threaten uh, an equal uh, body 
to not to do something. You don't threaten people not to check and balance you when it is their job to check and balance you. Okay, they're saying that their uh, border security officials has clock ticks toward, and I think I think the govern the governor of New Mexico, um, if I don't if I'm not getting my words crossed, uh, New Mexico or somewhere along the border there, someone, some governor has pulled her troops away from the border. Uh, Trump ordered troops to the border. Uh, but she is pulling her troops away from the border because she's saying this is just a charade. Oh, it's more than a charade. It's bullshit. There is no crisis on the border. Every fucking body knows that. Trump, and this is not about a border wall. Trump wants wants this money so he can just because he thinks he should be able be able to get it because he's entitled to it. What he wants to do is pocket it. He wants to try to pocket this money some kind of way. He wants to try to pocket taxpayer money. That's what I think. There's no crisis on the border wall. Even some some of his re- Republicans who are now turning against him, they didn't do it in the beginning, but it seemed like they're turning against him. They are saying, hey, there's no crisis on the border. You should not be declaring an emergency. Because if you try to declare an emergency to try to get the money, this is going to go through the courts, and the judges are going to say, hey, there's no crisis. So therefore, there's no border wall money, especially when you call it emergency funding. There is no emergency on the border. So if he tries to declare that this – once again, if he tries to declare uh, this some kind of national emergency on the border – it's going to go through the courts, and the courts are going to say, no, you, it, it, there's no emergency on the, on the border. Excuse me. And there is no emergency on the border. If drugs are coming through, they're coming through other ports of, of entry, not across that particular U.S.-Mexico border. It's, it's just not – and I don't know why con- – Trump constantly lies. Mike Pence constantly lies about this. They don't even believe in – they don't believe the border patrol police who are on the border who says there is no crisis. Trump will not believe that. Anyway, um, lawmakers are running out of time to avoid a government shutdown. You, you, you – that's right. That is uh, another shutdown is looming for the 15th of February. Trump is going to shut it down again. And if that shutdown does happen, and I hope it doesn't, and we all should hope it does not, it's going to be devastating because Trump is not uh, Trump is not going to get up. It may be two months this time, three months. People are going to suffer their asses off because this is what Trump likes. He he loves to see people suffer. He, he's going to hold this country hostage. In essence, Donald Trump is going to take America down with him. He knows he's going down. He knows that the House, the House of Representatives, who is, a, who is a co-equal branch of government, is going to investigate him to the hilt. He might as well resign, but he knows he cannot resign because if he resigns, he will be indicted. There will be nothing covering him. 
Right now, as I've said many times, the presidency of the United States is saving Donald Trump's ass. He's being saved by being president. If he wasn't president, he would be indicted off to jail like the rest of his uh, flock, his mob, including Michael Flynn, uh, Michael Cohen, um, Paul Manafort. He'd be off to prison just like these guys are, or some of these guys are in prison already. He would be <laughs> – the presidency is saving his ass because there's some sort of a clause on the DOJ's books that's saying that a sitting president cannot be cannot be uh, indicted, which um, that's bullshit because there's nothing in the Constitution that says that. So uh, – but they're, they're going to stick to that. But once Trump resigns, if he resigns, he's not going to resign for another reason. He loves power. He loves power. No matter how little, he's going to try to get around it. He wants to be dictator. He wants to be president for life. He wants to kick our asses. Trump will not resign. He will not quit. If Trump leaves the White House, he will leave kicking and screaming. The guy loves power. If he resigns, he will be immediately indicted because he will become a private citizen. A private citizen. So Trump is in a place right now where it's saving his ass. But Democrats are going to be investigating him to the hilt. One of the reasons why I think Democrats will be investigating Trump to the hilt is because Trump throws out these veiled threats. If you constantly investigate me, that's presidential harassment going to stop them from digging into his crimes as if that's going to scare them that's presidential harassment in other words he's trying to say I'm going to get you Trump makes these veiled threats out to everybody to his critics his critics he sends I mean you know uh, I'm not going to say he sends out bombs or letters or anything like that but I do know that people who support him and listen to him they do his bidding in which he constantly uh, 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 spews hatred and violence and destruction at his rallies I'm hearing that he's at a, he's going to be off to a rally tonight or he's going to be going to, going to one and a lot of the media outs, outlets are saying that they're not going to um, cover his rallies because there's nothing in his rallies but lies and violence and hate and and threats. That's all that's in his rally in his rallies. Why is he threatening people? His threats mean nothing. He's a bully. He's a bully. Trump is a bully. He'll threaten you to see if those threats are going to scare you and make you cease what you're doing or whatever. But if you stand – it's a bully. It's just like any other bully. Stand up to a bully. You face a bully off. They will leave you alone. I, I have known many bullies throughout my life, and I do know it for a fact most of them are cowards, if not all of them are cowards. Donald Trump is a coward. Stand up to a bully. 
And this is what the Democrats are doing, standing up to a bully. There's nothing the hell he can do. They have just as much power or more power in Washington than he does. He's pissed off that the Republicans lost the House of Representatives because if the Republicans had the House of Representatives and the Senate, America would be screwed. We would be screwed. I'm writing about this in my book. America will, would be screwed. But they didn't win. The Democrats, the blue wave, kicked their asses. And now Donald Trump is saying, hey, this is not fair. Now he's going around threatening people, threatening uh, other lawmakers, threatening people who talk against him, threatening people who don't like him, threatening his critics, sending people out to <laughs> sending people out to, to uh, uh, scare people. If you're talking about – if you hate Donald Trump, if you're saying nasty things about Donald Trump, somebody's going to be knocking on your door. As I've said the other day, 80% of the people in the United States do not like Donald Trump. You've got Republicans, people who used to be Republicans. Now they're either independents or they're Democrats because they don't want to be in the party of Donald Trump. And a lot of the voters out here, a lot of the constituency are saying, why is my representative, why is my senator not doing the job for my state as I vote, voted them to do, as I gave them their jobs? Why are they becoming ass kisses to Donald Trump? You got a lot of constituency. You got a lot of newspapers all over America uh, chastising their representative for being in the pockets of Donald Trump. Trump may not make it to 2020. The indictments, uh, the criminal criminality that's coming could force him to resign or quit or be impeached. So he may not make it, but then again, he could make it. Donald Trump seemed to dance his ass out from under a lot of uh, things that he sh- others cannot. But if he does make it to 2020, he may not have enough money on hand to mount a campaign because a lot of the rich donors have even turned against him. The, the money people have turned against him. That's why you see Donald Trump every time he's on television giving some sort of a talk. He's also including uh, fundraising in that talk, just like he did the State of the Union. So I think that's probably what Donald Trump is afraid of, people not giving him money in order for him to mount an effective campaign for uh, 2020 if he makes it that far. And some of the Republicans in the, in the, in the Senate and in the House of Representatives, a lot of them, from what I'm hearing, they're trying to mount a primary against Donald Trump. That means that they're looking for someone to run against him in the Republican primary. That means giving him someone... <laughs> <laughs> uh, giving him some competition because he may not uh, uh, win the nomination for, the 20, for 2020, again, if he makes it that far. So Donald Trump is in all kinds of hot water that he's trying to threaten his way out of. He, and a lot of people say it, saying that by him threatening, uh, threatening people and and asking people and demanding people to end the investigations into his crimes, they're saying that 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 windows or mirrors uh, 
1974, Nixon, Richard Nixon. So, so yeah, this is um, uh, this is unpresidential. I mean, this is something. I mean, Donald Trump is is is. I mean, he's in a lot of trouble. He is in a lot of trouble, and he's trying to threaten his way out of that. And uh, I don't know if he can do it or not. I don't know if he can do it or not because if he decides to resign, and I think he should resign, it's too much. It's too much shit that's mounting. Uh, he will be indicted because he he will no longer be under the chill of the presidency that is protecting him from indictment as of right now. He will not resign. And another thing, another reason why he will not resign, I just mentioned it, he loves power. Donald Trump is drunk on power. And... He really is. He's drunk on power. All right, here is Stacey Abrams on the George Wilder Jr. Show. Good evening, my fellow Americans, and happy Lunar New Year. I'm Stacey Abrams, and I'm honored to join the conversation about the state of our union. Growing up, my family went back and forth between lower middle class and working class. Yet even when they came home weary and bone-tired, my parents found a way to show us all who we could be. My librarian mother taught us to love learning. My father, a shipyard worker, put in overtime and extra shifts, and they made sure we volunteered to help others. Later, they both became United Methodist ministers, an expression of the faith that guides us. These were our family values, faith, service, education, and responsibility. Now, we only had one car, so sometimes my dad had to hitchhike and walk long stretches during the 30-mile trip home from the shipyards. One rainy night, my mom got worried. We piled in the car and went out looking for him, and we eventually found my dad making his way along the road, soaked and shivering in his shirt sleeves. When he got in the car, my mom asked if he'd left his coat at work. He explained that he'd given it to a homeless man he'd met on the highway. When we asked why he'd given away his only jacket, my dad turned to us and said, I knew when I left that man, he'd still be alone. But I could give him my coat because I knew you were coming for me. Our power and strength as Americans lives in our hard work and our belief in more. My family understood firsthand that while success is not guaranteed, we live in a nation where opportunity is possible. But we do not succeed alone. In these United States, when times are tough, we can persevere because our friends and neighbors will come for us. Our first responders will come for us. It is this mantra, this uncommon grace of community that has driven me to become an attorney, a small business owner, a writer, and most recently, the Democratic nominee for governor of Georgia. My reason for running was simple. I love our country and its promise of opportunity for all. And I stand here tonight because I hold fast to my father's credo. Together, we are coming for America, for a better America. Just a few weeks ago, I joined volunteers to distribute meals to furloughed federal workers. They waited in line for a box of food and a sliver of hope since they hadn't received paychecks in weeks. 
making livelihoods of our federal workers a pawn for political games is a disgrace. The shutdown was a stunt engineered by the President of the United States, one that defied every tenet of fairness and abandoned not just our people, but our values. For seven years, I led the Democratic Party in the Georgia House of Representatives. I didn't always agree with the Republican speaker or governor, but I understood that our constituents didn't care about our political parties. They cared about their lives. So when we had to negotiate criminal justice reform or transportation or foster care improvements, the leaders of our state didn't shut down. We came together, and we kept our word. It should be no different in our nation's capital. We may come from different sides of the political aisle, but our joint commitment to the ideals of this nation cannot be negotiable. Our most urgent work is to realize Americans' dreams of today and tomorrow, to carve a path to independence and prosperity that can last a lifetime. Children deserve an excellent education from cradle to career. We owe them safe schools and the highest standards, regardless of zip code. Yet this White House responds timidly, while first graders practice active shooter drills, and the price of higher education grows ever steeper. From now on, our leaders must be willing to tackle gun safety measures and face the crippling effect of educational loans, to support educators and invest what is necessary to unleash the power of America's greatest minds. In Georgia and around the country, people are striving for a middle class where a salary truly equals economic security. But instead, families' hopes are being crushed by Republican leadership that ignores real life or just doesn't understand it. Under the current administration, far too many hardworking Americans are falling behind, living paycheck to paycheck, most without labor unions to protect them from even worse harm. The Republican tax bill rigged the system against working people. Rather than bringing back jobs, plants are closing, layoffs are looming, and wages struggle to keep pace with the actual cost of living. We owe more to the millions of everyday folks who keep our economy running, like truck drivers forced to buy their own rigs, farmers caught in a trade war, small business owners in search of capital, and domestic workers serving without labor protections. Women and men who could thrive if only they had the support and freedom to do so. We know bipartisanship could craft a 21st century immigration plan, but this administration chooses to cage children and tear families apart. Compassionate treatment at the border is not the same as open borders. President Reagan understood this. President Obama understood this. Americans understand this. And Democrats stand ready to effectively secure our ports and borders. But we must all embrace that from agriculture to healthcare to entrepreneurship, America is made stronger by the presence of immigrants, not walls. And rather than suing to dismantle the Affordable Care Act as Republican attorneys general have, our leaders must protect the progress we've made and commit to expanding health care and lowering costs for everyone. My father has battled prostate cancer for years. To help cover the cost, I found myself sinking deeper into debt, because while you can defer some payments, you can't defer cancer treatment.
in this great nation, Americans are skipping blood pressure pills, forced to choose between buying medicine or paying rent. Maternal mortality rates show that mothers, especially black mothers, risk death to give birth. And in 14 states, including my home state, where a majority want it, our leaders refuse to expand Medicaid, which could save rural hospitals, save economies, and save lives. We can do so much more. Take action on climate change. Defend individual liberties with fair-minded judges. But none of these ambitions are possible without the bedrock guarantee of our right to vote. Let's be clear. Voter suppression is real. From making it harder to register and stay on the rolls, to moving and closing polling places, to rejecting lawful ballots, we can no longer ignore these threats to democracy. While I acknowledge the results of the 2018 election here in Georgia, I did not, and we cannot, accept efforts to undermine our right to vote. That's why I started a nonpartisan organization called Fair Fight to advocate for voting rights. This is the next battle for our democracy, one where all eligible citizens can have their say about the vision we want for our country. We must reject the cynicism that says allowing every eligible vote to be cast and counted is a power grab. Americans understand that these are the values our brave men and women in uniform and our veterans risk their lives to defend. The foundation of our moral leadership around the globe is free and fair elections, where voters pick their leaders, not where politicians pick their voters. In this time of division and crisis, we must come together and stand for and with one another. America has stumbled time and again on its quest towards justice and equality. But with each generation, we have revisited our fundamental truths, and where we falter, we make amends. We fought Jim Crow with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, yet we continue to confront racism from our past and in our present, which is why we must hold everyone from the highest offices to our own families accountable for racist words and deeds, and call racism what it is, wrong. America achieves a measure of reproductive justice in Roe v. Wade, but we must never forget it is immoral to allow politicians to harm women and families to advance a political agenda. We affirmed marriage equality, and yet the LGBTQ community remains under attack. So, even as I am very disappointed by the President's approach to our problems, I still don't want him to fail. But we need him to tell the truth and to respect his duties and respect the extraordinary diversity that defines America. Our progress has always been found in the refuge, in the basic instinct of the American experiment, to do right by our people. And with a renewed commitment to social and economic justice, we will create a stronger America together. Because America wins by fighting for our shared values against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That is who we are. And when we do so, never wavering, the state of our union will always be strong.